0: Welcome to Polycast, a civilization podcast focused on game strategy. Dan Q. Makalua. The main team.
1: Mega Bears fan.
0: A composite show. Archive segments from previous episodes that got cut due to time.
2: Do have another video by Door Monster. 6 Independence Day.
0: Today is a good day. The city
2: of Cheeseland will no longer be oppressively ignored by our government. We are a free city, and when I am elected, I will be the governor we've never had. Woo! I feel like you're sending some weirdly mixed messages. As usual, pretty amusing. Got uh, regarding the loyalty mechanic. My first order of business is to decide which country will take over us next. Wait, what? So enjoy.
1: Seriously, hold on, why would we join another existing country? We just left one. This is what we wanted, independence. Well, yeah, but we can't just make up our own country. We're just one city. What would we even call ourselves? Menace? That could work.
0: Quarter for episode 303 with Dan Q, Akalua, The main Team, Make a Bears fan, Alpha Shard, and
3: Trusane. All rise and no fall has civilization reinforces a
4: dangerous myth. So they're like, it wants to solve a problem. The problem, the perpetual growth and it plagues many 4 games. Ugh.
2: We've already got a bum article, man. In the first paragraph,
0: you know how this is going to go. But okay, Dan, yeah. we'll cover this. <laughs> <laughs> Just because we're covering it doesn't mean we're covering it because we're going to laud it in any way. (laughs) You're giving it the time of day, but... I
5: I mean, I I do have something for this, uh, but...
2: Yeah. Oh, yeah, sure.
5: Let's rip into (laughs) him.
4: Rip into it.
5: Well, may I?
4: Yeah, let's do it. Go ahead.
5: Okay, so there's something called psychological terms that the article writer is referring to without actually referring to and it. it's called intrinsic motivation and intrinsic motivation and explaining in what i'm trying to talk to in the shortest words possible while focusing on the games extrinsic motivation is what motivates players to be rewarded by making good decisions and those players will want to make strategies to essentially make bigger numbers than their opponents rewarding them with victories while intrinsic motivation focuses more on personal rewards that are set based on what players feel rewarding And not necessarily because it's conducive to a good strategy or bigger numbers. What he seems to be doing in this article is that he's saying that the extrinsic motivator for growth is not accurate, which is true because Civ is not a real-life model. But he also wants to discourage that intrinsic motivation as well, which is just a way to make a player who likes extrinsic motivators like Yields to want to stop playing the game entirely, and I disagree with him on this. He makes examples for farms should start going bad, or cities should start flooding, or there should be climate changes to wreck the lands. And this just goes into why random events are generally a bad idea for designing 4X games for players driven by extrinsic motivators. There are ways that he refers to how pirates can show up and beat on your empire, but I'm kind of curious what his opinion would be on two things. The first one would be, he keeps talking about how the game is stagnant when you get to a certain point in the game, and that is true, but Sith 4 and Warlords 2 does something about that, and when you have technically beaten the game they just end the game for you they say oh you've beaten the game you've gotten all this land or you've beaten enough people that everyone is begging for you to stop and that's one way to do it something eu4 does is to kind of rubber band your tech and if you're ahead of time trying to tech up costs you extra resources if you're lower on the text and you get a discount to do it. So that's one way to keep... The
2: U4 is not very good, as an example. No, no. Compared to the other two. The expansion aspect of that game is just wild. Like, there's nothing tech can cover at that
5: point. But I am just saying that's one way to look at it for trying to rubber band it (laughs) so that it's not stagnant all the time.
0: Yeah, or like true runaway stuff. I knew that selecting this topic would lead to at least one call of why are we giving this the light of day, as Phil referred to it, and maybe there's some other people on the panel that feel the same way. Part of why I'm giving it the time of day, I want us to talk about it on the show, is some little things. First off, it's Rock, Paper, Shotgun. <laughs> it's a well-known name. But the thing is, there are things that he comments about, and Drew, you kind of touched on it a little bit there and I'm going to quote this one part from the article that sooner or later in every Civ game you'll reach a point where the challenge is gone but there's still a long grind before you reach the point where you win the game and yes that is true yeah I feel like he takes the this is the way it is currently in the game and it shouldn't be in the game I agree to that point But then to go so far as to say that it shouldn't be about the continual rise and getting more and more is better and better, that there should be this decay, and it should mimic real life more. Well, first off, if we want real life, then we'll go play real life. (laughs) This is a game. This is not an historical simulator on top of it, like some other titles that have been mentioned. This is more of an abstraction. It's to be fun. But in order to deal with the issue, it's not going to be fun if your land starts to flood, your cities start to decay, your cities turn into barbarian camps because you had two Dark Ages in a row. (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah. Uh, the problem is there's no well, control over that... this proposed mechanics. So, right. like, you directly screw over extrinsic motivators, and you also directly screw over all the other mechanics just to make arbitrary crap happen that makes the player
1: struggle. I I want to remove
2: skill as an element in the game.
1: I want to say that I'm probably going to be a little bit more sympathetic to this article than the rest of the panel is. And I think a big part of that is that one of the things that's kind of unfortunate whenever somebody brings up the ideas of like civil wars or climate change or droughts or flooding or whatever, weather events, climate events, things like that, people kind of conflate that with random events. Probably in large part because that was how Civ 4 Beyond the Sword, did it, and that that's system most strategy
2: was, games so was not
1: very good. But I think that there is room to talk about the ideas of having system-driven yeah, events, say,
5: that's, yeah. because yeah. That's really there, there are it. other
1: games that do that very well. And one of the <sighs> best examples that I can think of would be something like a city builder. Right. Where you have a lot of different systems that kind of tug at each other, where in a city builder, you do want to grow. It has that same kind of glorifying of perpetual growth kind of issue that this has where, you know, most city builders, you can't win or whatever by just building a little farming community. And being like, all right, that city's good. You know, they expect you to build these giant New York-style metropolises. But those games will have different pressures that tug at you in different ways. So, for example, if you stop growing and you stop attracting new people um, moving into your cities, your population is going to age and die, and then you're going to have fewer people in the workforce, and your economy is going to suffer. So, can't just get to a point where you just sit on your laurels and the city just works for the rest of the game, because there's these little systems that add kind of destabilizing mechanics to everything. And that's one of the things that I think that civilization hasn't quite tried to do yet. And a big part of that is because those sorts of things are more on the simulationist side of gaming. That's probably more appropriate for games like Europa Universalis and, you know, maybe even Total War, stuff like that. But I don't want to just automatically dismiss such mechanics as not being able to fit within Civ. Things like cities turning into barbarians or civil wars, those things are not fun because Civ does have this perpetual growth model where anything that sets you back kind of almost by definition puts all the other opponents that far ahead of you you never ever want to lose anything in Civ and a big part of that is because the game is all about constantly growing if you had systems in place where you had to do a more careful job of managing the resources because they might expire or get exhausted or something like that where there might actually be advantages to maybe even losing territory because you get a more compact empire that's easier to manage and then that allows you to then and i think this is kind of what they wanted to do with the dark ages but it doesn't quite work this way
5: i think what it actually is and we saw it in civ 5 and we saw it in civ 6 is the happiness in civ 5 and the amenities in civ 6 you started referring to climate change and this is just a system you know i know you're not referring to specific but like you could have a slider in your city or something doing that if you keep growing too industrious, too fast. But we already have that. That's called a happiness system, and that was the amenity system, really. True, but opinion. the
1: difference between having something like, again, going back to the example of climate change, is that that would affect everybody in the game, not just you. So if there's you know, a worldwide or continent-wide drought, that would not only affect your civilization, but it would also affect your neighboring civilizations as well. So, it's not just a matter of I don't have enough amenities, so I can't grow. It's everybody in this area of the map doesn't have enough resources or food, so none of them can grow. We're all dealing with the same problems. And maybe we even at this point want to cooperate with each other to overcome that problem where we're sharing food and we're sharing water and stuff like that. But right now in Civ, those things aren't really resources that you ever trade. You can't ship bushels of wheat to your neighbor to help their cities grow. You can't send. Why
2: would you want to, though? You would have to have a different model of game. Like this cannot work right. in a forex because you don't want your opponent to get better. Like we are talking a major different type of game at this stage. And All that's right. the Possibly. problem with yes. that so often happens with these kinds of mechanics. It's a misalignment of incentives and also misalignment with the gameplay in general. If you have mechanics like around the climate change, that can work in context, but you need meaningful choice with it in the context of your victory condition. And that's where like a game like SIP 4 completely failed. Yes, it Correct. affected everybody, yes. but it really didn't have any impact on the outcome of the game except for maybe making it happen slightly slower because everyone got less yields. So, like, what's the point then?
1: Well, was, I, I agree with are that you. I think Civ 4 did it wrong, but I, I, the point that I'm you, just su- trying to make is that I think if you developed a system where if the entire game was designed around the set of competing systems that are tugging at you in different directions, these sorts of things could hypothetically work. I'm just saying that I don't yeah, want to find a system that them. you'd be able to well, see it offhand. Is. That's what you I'm know. trying to ask.
0: Because yeah. we want to get away from the notion of a random event, like we saw in Civilization 4, which is not connected to anything you were or were not doing. Correct.
1: If there's going to be some kind of climate change or global warming thing, it needs to be a reaction to something that you're doing in the game, something that you also had the choice to do differently earlier in the game. Like what Phil said is there has to be choice and there has to be agency, and the player has to be able to understand that these are the consequences and these things are going to happen if I take these actions. Just like I said, in a city builder game, you know, like Sim City or City Skylines or something like that, if you build a bunch of houses right next to all your factories spewing pollution and smoke into the air... All the people living in those houses are going to get sick. You can mitigate that by building hospitals and stuff like that nearby. But the underlying problem is that you built your factories too close to your houses and you shouldn't have done that.
5: When you're building a game, which one really gets to your emotions more? A 10% boost or a 5% penalty? Which one makes you feel more emotional if you were to get either of those?
0: Most people are probably going to feel that 5% penalty simply because it's a negative and there's, generally speaking, stronger emotions attached to that negative. Whereas if you express it as a positive in some other measure, then people are more likely to say, rather than being punished for doing something or not doing something, I'll be rewarded for doing something or not doing something.
5: So when it comes to 4X, in general you try to make people want to have the better yields for those extrinsic motivations, but like you do need to stop them at some point. You need to make sure that you can't just expand faster than everyone else and just win.
0: Nobody wants to return to infinite city sprawl which at its kind of purest mm. form, right. If this person was writing this article 15 years ago and we were talking about civilization 1, 2 or 3, of course, he'd be onto something more this Alistair MacQuire
5: But what we don't want is to pull too much back. We don't want to be like, hey, you're going to start getting a bunch of debuffs on you if you start going too far. Like, you know, just make it very hidden in the code, but don't put too many limits to your growth or else people are going to get mad. People aren't going to play the game anymore.
0: I feel like we've got two elements going on here. One, it has to be a series of meaningful choices. Things that you could have done or should have done beforehand have now led to some point in the game, whether it's the late game, the early game, or the mid game, that now that there's this consequence or there's this reward, and there's pros and cons, a consequence or a benefit. The new challenges that you could have emerge in the later game to feel like it's already a foregone conclusion, who's going to win? I think it'd be perfectly fine to go with the let's go ahead and end the game so it's not a slogfest.
5: Yeah, domination victory.
0: Or get rid of the victory conditions and go with some kind of objectives. But if you're going to introduce something later in the game that's then going to challenge those players that have done everything well, then you don't want to penalize them. You don't want it to be that, okay, you now have this negative that there's nothing that you can do simply to try to rubber band everybody else. It's just, here's another challenge that depending upon how you respond to it is going to have a meaningful impact, and you're going to have to react in some way, because if you're in the lead and you don't take this into account, then you're not necessarily going to be in the lead anymore. So it's not that all of a sudden, here's the switch, let's propel everybody else, let's challenge everybody as though it's the start of the new game again, and there's another layer to expanding, exploiting, exterminating, and explore. You need to know where your enemies are to kill them, Dan. Exactly. That's very true. That's very true. (laughs) Where are you on the map again? Wait, what? Go ahead and pin your capital for me. You put it a little bit over there.
4: (laughs) Totally not a nuke target.
2: No. (laughs) (laughs) You pin like some other person's
1: capital on the map. (laughs) (laughs) That's totally where (laughs) I am, guys.
4: Yeah, pin the AI (laughs) capitals. There you go.
1: I did very much like that victory condition in Civ 4, where it was like own 60% of the map or something like that. That was a. Yeah. I'm very disappointed that was not in Civ 5 and Civ 6. And I'd really like to have something like that back, along with, you know, the options for cooperative victories as well. I think would be a very good thing to allow the game to end sooner, where you and your allies are just like, all right, you know, hey, we're going to win the game. So.
5: Or maybe not oh. even just the military,
1: uh, you win. If you're pulling ahead in any victory so hard, you win the tricky part about that though is that because there are different victory conditions and they are so different from one another just because you're pulling ahead in one victory condition someone else might be pulling ahead in another victory condition so There's it can't just be
2: one get conquered threat too yeah
1: you can be two eras ahead in technology but if you didn't build any military units then you know <laughs> all your cities are about to become shaka's cities so <laughs> yeah that's not really winning. <laughs> <laughs> right. And then there's also the thing where, you know, maybe I do have the biggest military, I've got the best research, but someone else's super crazy culture and tourism, and so I can't just call a win unless I do something to stop that other person's culture generation.
0: The way Alistair has constructed this article doesn't strike me as someone that would say, in order to respond to this late-game drag where it's just end-turn, 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 doesn't sound like he's interested in having it so that the game go ahead and ends. But what he's talking about is a rubber banding thing here, and it's, I think you could change the way the late game is, so that it's not that the game ends, but again, it becomes a new phase, and if he's already not going off the rails on that point, when he talks about, towards the end, that with Rise and Fall, specifically with Civilization VI, uncritically repeating the myth of perpetual growth, where Emery talks about, oh yes, it uncritically reinforces one of the most damaging myths of our time, a myth currently destroying our only biosphere okay so you were talking about game design and now you're talking about environmental protection in the real world you went too far this isn't a gaming article Uh, per se oh no no his
5: claims go a little too far i was trying i was trying to be a little constructive with it but like
1: yeah (laughs) i think what he's basically doing is this article is a criticism of mass conspicuous consumption and he's just applying that criticism to civilization the game pretty much
5: if you're growing too much, then uh, nothing's stopping you. Like, that's the problem with 4X games. And it's like, well, yeah, yeah, technically.
0: In the chat, the buzzing says, I think we can imagine a Civ-style game where winning is growing by constantly overcoming adversity. Okay. In the form of a stream of small to moderate random events that affect one or more players, if we get rid of that word random, I like to think on this show, but random events... Procedural. Yeah, we're going to distinguish that, (laughs) and we're going to talk about the procedural events, and if it says it affects one or more players, I could certainly see a situation in the case of global warming, which often comes up, and this is an example. If you're on a continent with somebody and you know that there's options for them to not pollute as much, but they choose to do so, if you're a of that, and you have a way to respond to that, whether that's militaristically, economically something, in order for them to stop, because you recognize it's not just going to affect them at some point. Like, it should start affecting them first. But if it starts to spill over into you, or it will spill over into you, then you have to decide, is that really an effect that I can just go ahead and ignore? Or do I really need to actively do something about that, in which case you also have a meaningful choice? I just don't want it to be that. You know what? I'm so far ahead. I'm going to win this game, but I'm just going to go ahead and pollute the landscape. But it's not going to matter to me because I'm so far ahead. I don't have to worry about everyone else trying to industrialize now because they're not going to be able to industrialize because they're going to be dead. Where is the meaningful response to that? Yeah. You, you would have little to no control over that. That would not be fun. And I feel like that's kind of what Alistair's saying that civilization should get to in order to respond to this issue. And that just makes a bad situation worse.
5: When you were starting that argument, I thought you were about to say that random offense is a swear word on this podcast or
2: something. <laughs> well... according
5: <laughs> to fill it is.
2: No, like I, I actually am not that opposed to random events. I'm opposed to random events with no agency and no meaningful choice to them, and that's what the four events were mostly. There were some that were that wasn't the case, right? Like, but that was example- the problem with
1: them. Like For example, I, th- I think some of the Total War games have had mechanics where if you're trading with certain civilizations, random events would pop up that would affect your diplomatic relations with those other civilizations. Like like one of your diplomats would perform like some kind of va pas or something like that at a uh, diplomatic event, and now you have to choose whether you're going to punish him or not, and that would influence how the other civ perceives you in sometimes either obvious or not entirely obvious ways. So that's one thing. If it's just a completely random thing that comes out of the blue, I think that's bad. But if it's something where you're doing something that is causing these events to happen, and the thing that you're doing is clear to you, like you know why it's happening, and there is something meaningful that you can do about it, and it doesn't even have to just be a little dialogue prompt coming up saying you've got one of two or three choices, like it could just be a mechanical thing where you have to change your behavior in the game in order to resolve this event. But I think those are the two most important things, is you need to understand why it's happening, and you need to have something meaningful that you can do about it.
5: If you're out expanding all the other civs, then maybe you should just bump up the difficulty. Maybe that's <laughs> something you can do. <laughs> Super deity.
0: I can just see it now in a multiplayer game. Hey, you're running away with the game. We've now increased the yields or whatever that you have to achieve by 300%. Screw you. <sighs> <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, make that dynamic, too. Like... Uh, it's like, oh, you're almost to the finish line. Drew it oh, over here. Come catch up. Come oh, catch man. up.
5: <laughs> and just have the yields just uh, go down by a dynamic percent. Oh man, that would just be awful. That's something that can be implemented and be the most awful thing I ever think of.
0: Or even better, hey, you kept increasing your yields of science and production. That's fantastic. But hey, the world can't support that. So the person with the lowest amount wins because they were conserving energy. What? <laughs> 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 Jester
5: wins. <laughs>
4: And I think this also gets a little into realism versus gameplay. Yeah, in reality, you have disasters and floods and things, but we're here to have fun, not to have a realistical simulation. If I wanted that, I could go play SimCity
0: or City Skylines.
5: Are you sure you don't want all your yields to go down for no reason?
0: Yes, I'm very sure I do not want my yields to do that. Thank you. It would make all your other problems in the game, Mackie, seem minuscule in comparison.
4: Uh, nah. I would have a bigger problem rage quitting. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I like what uh Civ4 had
4: done with the corporations for endgame content and what Civ Five had done introducing archaeology and excavating artifact locations. So I mean that made the end game to me more interesting, more agency. I can see why they want maybe somehow to be able to stop a player that looks like he's pulling so far ahead, but without introducing some uh so let's say bullshit. Random event just to stop them. If someone's playing head culturally, then maybe you need to come in with an army. It was a spaceship, but if they're domination, then there's not too much you can do if they're conquering most of the continent, the world.
2: That's always the problem, isn't The game's design right now is just too favoring military for anything else to be viable.
4: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like. You're almost changing what the game is. I mean, here you're trying to be the best of the best to get one of these goals, either the best of culture, best of science, or best of military.
2: That will always be persistent reality, though, in a 4X. Unless you make military trivial, then it's always, if you get conquered, you can't win your other victory (laughs) condition.
4: Right.
1: Right around the same time that the expansion came out, I had been talking with one of my coworkers, friends, about Civ and some of our frustrations that we have with um, the diplomacy system. And both of us are very annoyed by the fact that there is nothing proactive that you can do to tell the AI that you do or do not want them to behave in certain ways if you are interested in friendly relations with them. And we started just brainstorming about like different ideas that we could maybe come up with to resolve this that weren't just a matter of bringing back the old diplomatic prompts of please don't settle next to me or whatever, which are still in Civ Six, but you can't use them until after the AI already performs that behavior, at which point oftentimes it's moot. Like, your only recourse then is to denounce them or declare war on them. And even if you denounce them, they and other AIs don't know why they were denounced. So it also doesn't change their behavior at all, other than making them mad at you and not like you for the rest of the game.
0: I think the added point there is that the other players do not know the reason why. It's bad enough that the person that you denounce doesn't know, but if the others don't know the context, then they're almost certainly unless they already hate that person that you denounced, are going to hate you for simply that very reason. Right. But maybe you both hate that person for the same reason, or perhaps you hate the same person for a different reason, and then you can share that information. The enemy of my enemy is my friend, so perhaps (laughs) not only could you avoid some really negative situations for you, but you could actually build a friendship based on your mutual dislike of somebody else. Oh, ain't life grand. Right. So in order to maybe possibly address some of
1: those complaints, my friend and I had come up with this idea of having this publicly known set of foreign policies that every player, including the AIs, can set that would include a list of things that you consider to be acts of aggression and acts of war. And the difference between the two would be that if somebody violates an act of aggression, you would have a reason to to denounce them. You could explicitly cite that stated reason as why you are denouncing them. And if somebody violates something that you consider to be an act of war, that would give you an immediate casus belli to declare war on them, again, for that reason, without having to wait for the five-turn cooldown for denouncements. We have
0: part of that already from the AI to the human player in Civilization VI, where they denounce you if you have enough of a diplomatic level with them. They will tell you, for example, like you have just been denounced. And I mean, in some cases, it's the stupid, they just plain don't like you. But sometimes it's you're competing for the favor of the same city-states. You broke a promise to them. It would be nice for us to be able to turn around and do that, whether it's one side or the other for the entire world then to go back to, knowing why it is that you have denounced this person, which could then set the stage for further action down the road. And something that you could also go in through the user interface, be able to tell, okay, this person denounced this person on this turn for this specific reason. Do I care or do I not care? And if I do care, is that because it's a, I think it's a good thing or I think it's a bad thing?
1: Right. As I said, a few weeks ago, I had written up this
0: blog post.
1: The idea basically being that you could have things that you could explicitly say and define are things that you don't want the AI to do and that you would consider a hostile act. I had made up little mock screens of basically another page of the social policies thing using the social policy cards, just as kind of like a proof of concept template kind of thing. Cards that would say things like, uh, you completed a wonder that we were building, or you denounced one of my friends, or you stationed units too close to my borders. So you would slot those in. And if another player or AI violates them, it would give you a reason for denouncement or war. And the AI's if they are robustly enough programmed, would also be able to see that and if they want to be friendly with you, could be programmed to try to avoid doing those activities. And if they're actually in a situation where they want to antagonize you, maybe they actively try to do those things just to make you mad and try to provoke you into war. And as an extension to all of that, I had also proposed that you could also set a set of things that you uh, actually do want the AIs to do. So like for example, if you're playing as Gandhi, and you actually benefit from having other players' religions in your cities, or if you're playing as Congo, you could set friendly policy that says, hey, bring your missionaries to my city. We welcome them. And then AIs that want to be friendly with you and who want to spread their religion would then know that you're a receptive target for their missionaries and apostles. Other things like send me a trade route, could also go into those almost the way that the city states could offer quests to the players the players could also offer quests to each other in order to gain favor is the basic idea
0: i know in your article you also made comparison to the civilization beyond earth rising tide expansion and the communique logs that you would receive from the artificial intelligence while the turn is even going on right as like why are you doing this why have you done this which included both positive as well as the negative. Just like in your proposal here, it's not just all about the things that can get people upset. And to be able to communicate that up front, say when having met the person, so you know, oh, I know this specific AI is going to respond in fashion if I do this, but also if I want to try to curry their favor, then I could go and do this. I also like tying it specifically to their abilities, for example, and maybe other things that are going on more situationally in the game, but those things that you would absolutely know up front are either going to be good or bad, which I suppose you could then maybe learn more about that over time, or if you increase your relationship level, that you would get to know more about the things that ticked them off or made them like you more.
1: Right, yeah. It just most importantly, just having a way of proactively telling other players and the AIs how you would like for them to behave. They don't have to follow it, obviously, because you know that would make the game boring if everybody just cooperated. But it's just really frustrating when you have an AI, you have friendly relationships, or maybe even an alliance, and you're sending trade routes with each other, and you're trading luxuries and stuff like that, and you're declared friends, and then suddenly they forward settle right in the middle of your cities. And it's like, okay, what do I do now? I can denounce them. But even if I denounce them, they were my friend and ally, everybody else is going to hate me because I denounced a friend, even though they did something that was clearly a hostile or unwelcome act. So just having ways of telling the AIs to not do those things would be nice. And I I like the idea of there being a finite number of how many of them you can set. So you can't just be like, oh, don't do anything that hurts my progress through the game. You'd actually have to prioritize which are the things that are the most important to you.
0: I feel like this could even go into even greater minutia part of it was as you were talking about the, hey, you forward-settled on me, which I think for the most part, somebody would say, well, that wouldn't depend on what civilization you were. You forward-settled on them. Even if you are, say, a declared friend, they could still say, hey, man, that wasn't cool. And perhaps if you are a declared friend, that would be even worse as if you were neutral. But (laughs) I could see some really extreme situation like, oh hey, this uh, civilization is currently attacking me. I know this is super super, super situational. Go and place a city between that civ and another civ that's attacking them. And then they give you a really small diplomatic boost, which is, hey, thank you for providing a buffer zone between myself and this other person. Similarly to perhaps things that you would always associate as an act of a goodwill, which would be, like in your mock-up image, like sending trade routes to our cities that perhaps, no, you don't like that. For I don't know, whatever the reason could be. But I like that there's the balance between, again, the proactive and the good and the bad. Based on your mock-up image here, you've got the acts of war. You allow the immediate declaration of war with minimum warmonger penalty and minimum war weariness. Acts of aggression, allowing denouncement that is weighted more heavily by the other civilizations. Would the acts of goodwill allow a declaration of friendship that is weighted more heavily by other civilizations? It's not just about being friends, but why you are friends with that person? Sure.
1: Yeah, I could see stuff like that working. I mean, I don't think that fulfilling those should be a requirement for having a declaration of friendship, obviously, just like I don't think that violating an act of aggression should be a requirement for denouncing. You should still always have the option to just denounce someone because you just don't like them. But it should just be more transparent why the denouncement is happening in both directions, both denouncing of the AI to the player and from the player to the AI. I think it should work in both directions. And I even had proposed the idea of if civilizations that meet your acts of goodwill, you could even have like maybe a reward that you could set for them. Like it could maybe even be part of the act when you set it, or maybe it could be something that you define later. So like, for example, if you are saying, hey, send us a trade route, and then they send you a trade route, maybe that triggers like some bonus where all the trade routes between your civilizations get like a buff or something. So not only is it, hey, it's going to be a diplomatic bonus, but there's also an actual gameplay mechanical incentive for doing this.
0: Yeah, it would require that trigger, just like you talk about certain things, you know, examples of actual that would need to be unlocked, like after researching a particular civic or after researching a particular technology, this would be something that would only happen as a result of the completion of another action. So in that way, it would be a static thing, but you would first have to reach that particular condition in order for it to apply.
1: Right, obviously you shouldn't be saying, hey, don't nuke us on turn zero, because that's just not (laughs) even possible.
0: (laughs) Oh, I thought maybe you say, you shouldn't say that on turn zero, because, hey, maybe you like the glow, but... Would you envision the possibility that as the game progressed, not simply incidentally, but as a result of your individual relationships with a particular civilization, or maybe, maybe even civilizations as a whole, that at one point what was once considered, say, an act of aggression is perhaps now an act of war, or the other way around, or it goes to something that's neutral, or something that was might have made them happy earlier on in the game is now going to tick them off?
1: Right. Well, the mockups that I had made basically using the social policy screen as a template. So using that same model, these would be little cards that you could slot in and out. So, yeah, if, say, early in the game, you really don't want someone declaring war or conquering that city state next to you because you're their suzerain, you know, so you might set that as an act of war. If someone declares war on that city state, then you declare war immediately on them, almost like a protectorate war, but without the having to actually research that. But then later in the game, say that city state did get conquered or maybe you just lost your suzerain of it. You prioritize other city states or someone else, you know, put the diplomat governor in it and you can't possibly catch up. Now you don't need that to be an act of war anymore. You slot that out. You slot something else in or you demote it to an act of aggression if you still want to try to become their suzerain.
0: And this mock-up, yes, that you're talking about on your blog, where we see your policies being broken down into domestic and foreign, would it then be possible for a civilization to react favorably to you depending upon your particular domestic policies?
1: Yeah, I mean, they already do that for government. I think that's a little bit harder, though, just because there are so many social policies to do. It just seems like the bonuses for that would be weird, and in a lot of situations, they'd probably just offset each other anyway. But, I mean, it's doable.
0: Something that could be incorporated into Civilization VI as well, in part because how you've already tied it into existing mechanics, let alone saying, oh, this is something for a Civilization VII. Well, it could be, but we wouldn't have to wait that long right. necessarily to see something like this. It would just be not just an extension of what we already have, but in some cases, dotting the And crossing the T's. A lot of the things that I had uh, proposed are actually things that the AI
1: already recognizes. These are things that the AI will already denounce you for, or which will already trigger a positive or negative diplomatic modifier. So it's just a matter of making it so that the user can define or prioritize which of those are most important to you, and then setting the AI so that not only they recognize it, but they might change their behavior based on whether or not they want to be friendly towards you or whether or not they're already friendly towards you.
0: Plus 10, you listen to Polycast. Minus 10, you listen to Polycast instead of playing with me. (laughs) Aww. (laughs) Aww. That's right. Get (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't have to be mutually exclusive. Come on, now.
3: (laughs) Yeah.
1: Some of the others aren't. I welcome any listeners, if you've got any ideas, or if you think this is a terrible idea. Like I said, this was a very brainstormy kind of thing. So there might even be deal breakers for this. And I imagine that programming the AI to handle this, even though there are a lot of triggers that are already in the game, would still probably be pretty difficult. So I don't know how feasible it would be for Civ 6, but I definitely think that moving forward with the franchise, we need more robust ways of talking to and interacting with the AIs. And uh, I think this is one way that that could maybe be accomplished.
0: When Civilization 7 is multiplayer only, what are you going to do about it? Well, I mean, a lot of the same things
1: could still apply. You could still give other players quests with actual rewards so that instead of every game just being a build a bunch of units and conquer everyone else by the medieval era, there actually are reasons to cooperate with one another that are mechanically reinforced. So it could still work. It wouldn't be as important because you can still always just open up the chat and tell them, hey, don't settle next to me or I will declare war on you. But you can't do that with the AI. Maybe if they just port Siri or, or uh, Alexa or something over in, with speech recognition, you can just chat with the AI. Maybe that'll be in Civ 7. I don't know. Who knows? But oh,
4: Siri, yeah. could you not settle so close to me? Thanks. <laughs>
0: You're Sorry, right. you get wrecked. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Acknowledging as, will you please settle closer towards me? No, not settle. Settling closer to you. No, no, no. Not settle. <laughs> now bend over.
4: <laughs> well, that's in your special version, Phil
2: Uh, that takes on connotations that are a little unfortunate there Mackie
0: 111 team Mega bears fan and sedwick
1: user a clue without posted a topic criminally underrated what do you think in civ is underrated he's specifically asking for things that are more powerful than people realize or more fun things that people should experiment with more so i'm guessing that he's talking about things that are in the game but are like not as important in the game as they maybe were in real life or maybe things that are in the game that are not being given enough credit with in terms of game mechanics i I think he's saying that these things are stronger than people think
0: in the game yeah Yeah.
1: and the top few items that the original poster lists are aqueducts, farms, and entertainment complexes, and then there's harbors and industrial zones, but I thought people already agreed that those were pretty good.
0: As far as farms being underrated, I don't know if it's criminally underrated. I don't know if it's so much underrated as it is people just aren't talking about it. I don't get the aqueducts thing at all.
2: Nah, no, I don't either.
0: They're definitely not more powerful. I don't think they're more fun either. Not in Civ Six. No. Placing a
2: city that needs one is (laughs) it's bad enough that you really want to consider if it's worth placing that city because the setup time just becomes so much more before it's a good city.
1: Well, the thing for me is that aqueducts are very expensive early in the game. But when you get into the mid game, when you're still settling your medieval or renaissance cities, which, you know, in single player, you might still be doing because the game actually lasts that long. Aqueducts are, I think, actually a lot more viable because on the standard game speed, you're talking about them taking maybe like five turns, if that to build whereas another district is you know taking 20 turns or something like that because you've already built them in all your cities so settling away from fresh water in order to access more resources or like better terrain or a place specifically like to put a wonder or something like that that requires river adjacency instead of putting the city on that tile i actually do do that from time to time and the aqueducts are usually cheap enough at that point that I can throw one out and it's not that big a deal, especially if you've got trade routes providing production to the city. And if you've got the trade routes providing production to the city, then you're probably also getting food, which means the city grows quickly enough that you hit that housing cap fairly quickly. I mean, you're talking about growing population every couple turns.
3: Yeah, Okay. have got
1: trade routes going. So early in the game, aqueducts are crap. You should not be founding cities away from water. But if you're still founding cities in the medieval or Renaissance era or later, then yeah, definitely consider putting them or one tile away from a river or a mountain and using an aqueduct because you might actually be able to get better land and have a better city long term by doing that. And the aqueducts at that point are pretty cheap to build in most cases.
3: Forum user Kriat or Kriat mentioned my choice levying city states. If you can scrounge up a coin, this can be a great early to mid game tool because then you have this exploratory army that you can send out in different directions to meet new sieves and conquer barbs or find natural wonders, or you can keep them within four tiles of each other and carve a ribbon of exposed terrain out on your map. and And the error points from levying city states has allowed me to avoid a dark age at least twice.
0: Uh. Uh-huh. I think they might be underrated, but I don't think they're criminally underrated. Well, First off, you need to find a city-state that has a decent amount of them, number one, and also where the city-state is currently located, because you're only going to have them for X number of turns, and then they're going to fall back into the control of the city-state. And of course, anything that you do with those particular units, like say, oh, I get a promotion on that, oh, well now the city-state can benefit from that promotion, I think more often than not, you're spending that gold that you would spend to levy the city-states to construct units and then upgrade them, or maybe even in some cases just use that gold to buy a workshop to construct those units or just build those units outright yourself, so then you've got control over them from the beginning of their life to the end of their life.
1: Playing as Sumeria, then levying city-states should be a key component of your strategy. Because they're heavily discounted.
3: Yeah, but I'm just thinking the ability to send four or five armed scouts right off in a direction you haven't gone yet just could be pretty valuable.
0: Could be. It's just like you're exploring in general. It's like, well, do I go? Do I construct a scout right now or not? Or I could construct something else. I just think it's a bit more uh, situational. And if you have a situation
1: where you have city states as a buffer between you and an enemy, and the enemy walks their units past the city state, and then you are able to suzerain them and then levy all their units, I mean, you'll just wipe out the opponent's army, usually by doing something like that, because you're hitting them at both flanks. It's very situational, but that's a very powerful... That's rarely
2: going to be available
1: to anything but fighting in the AI, but it's true. You could screw it over the AI like that pretty hard. Well, you could probably also catch if you're not playing competitive multiplayer, if you're playing one of the few players who plays, quote, regular multiplayer, you could probably catch quite a few human players off guard because not very many players think about levying units because it is in a lot of situations seems prohibitively expensive.
2: If that works on that opponent, that's not a pertinent opponent. That's a legitimate threat to beat you. I'm sorry. That player is a potato that still needs to learn the game so you don't have to worry about him. Right. Well, that's I mean, it, why it sounds I... harsh, but like even if you don't levy them, even if you just suzerain the city state after their army walks by, yeah, that's still going to completely cripple their mobility and screw them over. Like anybody with any sense whatsoever would either grab a commanding lead on the suzerain status of that city state, or more likely, just take the thing if they want to attack you. Doing like long range operations through a city like that, that can flip on you. It's just such an obvious
1: invitation to get yourself screwed over. Like you should not be doing this. Right. Which is why I qualified that by saying for (laughs) players who are not playing competitive multiplayer, because I would expect most competitive players to know better than that. But if you're just playing a casual pickup game (laughs) with your friends, well, you can probably maybe catch someone off guard (laughs) by doing that to them for the first time. (laughs) Yes, it, especially
2: yeah. if, you, if wanna, you had been if you up your own arm- then go yeah, ahead and well,
1: stop their armies from behind
2: with candy. That's fine.
1: <laughs> again, I, I would say do it to a friend, so you're not, you know, <laughs> going to destroy a potential friendship. You know, someone who's going to laugh it off and think it's funny. But yeah, especially if you're saving up a bunch of envoys, like if you're not sending them immediately to city states, you can end up into a situation where, yeah, maybe the other player does have the suzerain status of that city state. And then you just pump like five envoys or something into them at a time and, and throw flip the money them. in there. Yeah. Yeah. Or throw the diplomat governor in there. It's something that you can do. And it's something that a lot of players, especially at the casual level, will not anticipate.
0: Yeah. Fair enough. Kyrat also, and uh, seeing as how uh, Cedric mentioned that post, also talked about underrated are spies. I don't think they're criminally underrated. Part of it is now that you can. I it's not that you're just going to get one for free, but I do find that I'm constructing spies more in Rise and Fall thanks to the government plaza, because you want to get to that government plaza initially for that adjacency bonus, and then, okay, I would like, for example, the Warlord's uh, Throne, the Tier 1 government building, that's going to give me that, you know, about 20% production bonus in all my cities for five turns if I capture a city Plus the fact that it'll allow me to get a hold of that legacy bonus, say an oligarchy that we talked about before. But then you can get to the tier 2 government, and if you construct the intelligence agency, that's going to give you a plus 1 spy and a spy capacity. Sometimes I want that spy to have visibility on a city, but typically what I'm looking for, because of how awesome gold is in the game, is I look through the list of the other civs, and it says, oh, I get the icon for gold, I can potentially steal gold from here. What's my potential for stealing gold here? Okay, I'm going to go and I'm going to place that person in there, and while they're trying to get that gold, I'm going to visibility on that city. But eventually the guy probably gets captured or killed, and then I think, oh, yeah, well, whatever. I rarely ever have an issue with building that first spy.
1: I almost always get that first spy out pretty promptly because when you hit, uh, I forget the name of the civic, uh, diplomatic something, it's a major milestone, like civic. So, you know, it's almost always a situation where it's like, oh, got to go build a spy now. But it's always those subsequent spies that I forget to build because I just forget to put them in my city's build list because I'm building units or I'm building buildings or something like that. And then I realize, oh, I only have one spy in the field and I have like a spy capacity of three now and I've totally forgotten to build those other two. Easy to forget to do that.
0: I do not recall frigates ever being. I don't think frigates are criminally underrated in this game. I think the only way they would be underrated is by people who do not typically play water-based maps.
1: Well, and just Navy in general is kind of not very good, but frigates themselves, if you build them and the other player doesn't have them, and they've got any cities within two tiles of the coast, <laughs> I mean, a frigate can crush walls in just a few turns.
0: And if there's enough of those within two hexes, then I can promote it up, and now I can get three hexes in. Thank you.
1: Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. Being able to put artillery on the water is a big deal.
0: And of course, I can have a land, for example, melee unit be escorted by that frigate, and then as soon as that city has been bombarded to nothing, if it's not on the coast, for example, if I can't reach it with, say, a caravel, then that's fine, I'll just have a land-based naval unit, it will land, and it'll be able to take it, if not that turn, then next turn, depending upon what the unit is. Done. Yeah. Fantastic. This person also mentions logistics as being underrated in the game. I would agree with that on account it's of Ivan's. The I've only like problem is it. it's late. It's yeah. late,
2: but it, that's the only problem with it. It is a top tier military policy, and once it is available, you should probably be running it for the rest of the game. It's excellent. Plus
1: one movement and starting turn in
0: friendly territory.
1: My issue with it has always been that at the point that it's unlocked, if I've been playing militarily aggressive and have not been going for a culture or science victory or something like that. I've already defeated all of the major threats anyway, and my units are so far out of my territory that logistics just doesn't help me anymore. It still helps you, and it helps you a lot, because the moment you capture a city,
2: those borders slip to yours, and That's that counts. true. So, if as long as you start the turn, even in a re- recently captured city's borders, you're getting that movement bonus, and so are all your work builders and settlers. On top of that, so it's even a decent econ boost because now your builders can move on to rough terrain and still make improvements on oh, the same is it turn. Oh,
1: civilian units
2: as well? Civilian units benefit as well. Oh, but okay. yeah, that, you have like five to six move uh, infantry, like melee units, are moving at five to six movements, uh, depending if you have supply of convoys artillery is moving like four or five if you have convoys it's ridiculous it's a really really good policy to be running i can't think of too many more military policies that would be more valuable in the late game i'm almost always running conscription though so you more than one slot though and this one should be in one of those slots in most games
0: oh yeah definitely conscription or the one that comes after that where it's instead of plus one Gold reduction on each of your units, it's plus two. Then this one on top of it as well. Yeah, Yeah, Yeah.
1: Grand Army, I think it's... Yeah, I run those
2: a lot as well. Those and this I have on almost every game that gets late. You begin so many turns in positions where you want to move from the borders you just captured to the borders of the next city. And coupled with Great General, even units that are traditionally very slow, like the melee, once you have melee promoted to have the move speed with the Great General, with this it's like running around with knights with a great general would be earlier only now they're infantry so you're lacking a lot of the problems that a knight might have you have all those promotion benefits and you can immediately get into range and often even just attack the next city and that's true with artillery as well because once you have observation balloons you can push the artillery forward and still have enough movement to shoot at the city on that turn because of the extra movement speed benefits you're getting because by then roads matter, right? So you're getting like four movement, and you can get into position with two movement, and then use the great general benefit, even if you don't have expert crew, to still shoot at the next walls. It makes such a difference in how quickly you conquer cities in the end game.
0: A clue without later added to his list in a subsequent post. In terms of, again, criminally underrated, he makes reference to the printing technology. As a reminder, printing provides one more level of diplomatic visibility on all other civilizations. All tourism yields from great works of writing are doubled. Without the context here, I something tells me he's talking about the second of those two things when you're going for a culture victory. Probably. I mean, yeah, you can also construct the Forbidden City, which is a fantastic wonder. Uh, (laughs) One of the best. For another wildcard policy slot. But something tells me it's not even about that, that it's about this tourism yield doubling. And he also says, unique tile improvements from city-states. So useless, but so fun. Oh, he just wanted to mention that, which is why he added the qualification of more fun. I'm not sure it's more fun than doing something to help you win the game. Yeah, being a little harsh, but I don't know. We, it's like we don't even get an era score bonus for constructing one of these things. You know, it's, come on. Sometimes the, uh, you just
1: got a cherry tap. It's fine.
0: The Alcazar I've found
1: can be very helpful in some games because you unlock that earlier than forts. And it does actually provide, I think, a couple culture points on the tile. So you can build those on like your um, border tiles and they provide like a 25% or 50% defense bonus or something like that. So I found those can be actually pretty useful.
0: Oh, available with uh, the Granada militaristic city-state.
1: Yeah, it's just the ability to build forts with builders, I think. You don't even need a military engineer for them. That's true. The other ones are are very meh.
0: The one you mentioned is
2: situational, but... Forts are so much better early game than late game. Yes. Game is tough because you have three range units and air
1: Right, yeah, which is why consider. having the Alcazars from, you said, I think Granada was the city-state that gives them. I always forget which city-state. That's state the people. one, yeah. yeah. But yeah, like getting those, finding Granada very early in the game and becoming their suzerain and building those can be a big difference. Yeah,
2: it can be a benefit, it's true. Usually all, more than a couple forts, but you're right, it, it helps a little bit sometimes. I don't hmm if it's a criminally underrated though I don't know about that but
1: no it's again it's a very very situational thing I mean it's a defensive bonus so it's only going to be helpful if your territory is actually being invaded yeah you know but like as also as a staging point for invasions they're helpful
3: criminally is just an attention getting modifier
1: Yeah, well, I I would say it's
2: things that are very (laughs) underrated. So, yeah, criminal is a bit much, but like (laughs) it's suggesting that these things are so underrated that it's pretty ridiculous that they're not widely regarded as
1: strong options. Right. But again, the Alcazar is something where it's like you look at it plus one or plus two culture or something like that, which is very easy to just dismiss. But it's the fact that it's a fort that hypothetically is available at the beginning of the game instead of at the end of the Renaissance. Right. That is the big difference there.
0: And lastly, I think we mentioned it in passing, but didn't really talk about it from Include Without's initial post. Again, criminally underrating of the entertainment complex. Mm. I don't think that is criminally underrated. That ends up being a – I'm looking at my amenity situation in a particular city – It's kind of an extended period, and uh uh-oh, I'm at minus five, except, I don't don't know if it's just me, but when the game first came out, oh no, my gosh, I'm at minus five, I'm suddenly going to have a bunch of rebels that are going to start causing some mischief, pillaging my stuff, getting in the way of my other units. And I really haven't seen any of those in a very, very, very long time, which makes them even less useful, the entertainment complexes, that is, because that was the one thing that I was constructing them for to try to mitigate that, but that was after extended wars, already maxed out amenities, plus you've also situations in war where you can run policy cards to reduce war weariness, and as the game goes on, there's even, you can actually run, I think, a couple of different cards that gives you minus 25%, so, whew. yeah, Yeah, I'm building entertainment complexes less often now than
1: I used to. But I will say that when you need an entertainment complex, you need an entertainment complex.
2: It's usually pretty obvious, though. Yeah. Like, I think they're properly rated as situational at best. I actually had a few of this that I put in this thread earlier. And the first thing that came to mind is cores and armies, because a lot of people still don't understand that 40 over 30 is just as good as... 80 over 70 in this game. And so the benefits from having cores and armies are enormous. Like, you cannot compete in equal tech with people who have cores if you don't have cores.
1: Unless you can bombard the heck out of them.
2: Yeah. Range. I mean, if you're talking about fighting the AI, then sure. But human players just going to stomp on you if you try that. Because your range is just going to do a lot less damage and then they're just going to run into your units and kill them. Yeah. And if you stack enough bonuses, contemporary units can one-shot each other, actually, if you have armies.
0: It's probably also worth mentioning the third item on your itemized list there, Phil, from your post.
2: Oh, ancient walls?
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's kind
2: of interesting. I, I don't consider it the same in multiplayer, because like humans actually know to bring something that lets them take cities. But in many cases, the AI, even when it's flooding units, it doesn't really bring battering rams or siege engines. And it will often run into your borders without any real siege units. So even if their stuff is pretty strong, it just can't do crap because damage against walls is so much reduced that they can't viably attack the city like if you do get a situation where the city state is on your the opposite side of your border or gets suzerained by your war target or something you can often build ancient walls in like a turn or two on online speed and that just shuts that down like at worst you're gonna get pillaged a bit the city will never ever take your city they don't have the siege units for it so for the amount of hammers you put in to completely ruin
0: that front they're pretty good there Support the ongoing Polycast Patreon campaign
4: Collective achievements
2: Personal
0: incentives
2: Month-to-month commitment
0: For more information, visit thepolycast.net slash Patreon
2: Call in today
0: In North America, 301-637-7659
2: In Europe, four four one two one two eight eight seven six five nine. 288 7659
3: the only thing worse than being talked about is not being talked about.
0: Log on to the series' official website at
3: thepolycast.net.
0: Well, but Aspire, the company that ported the Civ games to Matt...
1: Well, apparently they put up a post announcing it for smartwatches, and I have to say that UI looks pretty streamlined. <laughs> <laughs> yeah...
2: Is that a build queue? That's what I want to know. Yeah,
1: yeah. That's a selling point. I love the comment
4: where it says, uh, we can't think of a better canvas for world domination than a one square inch touchscreen.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Small screen, big ambition. Woo-hoo. That's right. <laughs> but hey, I mean, portable Civ, play it on the bus, play it on the can, you know.
2: <laughs> I like the hashtag, raise your finger. <laughs>
4: yeah. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs>
2: I imagine some people were raising a finger if they took this seriously. <laughs> do you think anyone
4: do you
1: think anyone actually took this as a non-April Fool's? There's so many people in the world. I'm sure somebody bought it. This is one of the reasons that I just don't like April Fool's Day in principle. I think at this point, it's so ubiquitous that it's just lost the point in doing it. People still
2: fall for it. That's uh... Yeah,
1: I know, but...
2: Yeah. When you mouse over this link that says raise your finger now, you can even see April Fools along the bottom left. It's... <laughs> yeah.
4: <laughs> just I'm just reading this, when Washington raised a finger, a country was born.
3: <laughs> oh boy.
2: Yeah. <laughs> uh, substitute that if your favorite leader.
4: Yeah, <laughs> oh, favorite I, I like
3: it. Case, maybe.
2: I like the way they wrote that. That was pretty amusing.
4: Anyway, we weren't so fooled. No. Yeah we actually have a research lab talk topic, <laughs> Phenomena. <laughs> Record
2: date assorted.
0: 2018.
4: Civilization four, five, and beyond Earth Sound Clips, Copyright Take Two Interactive.
0: Door Monster Clip, Copyright Door Monster. Copyright and Civilized Communication at civcom.net.